All right, so take your Bible. We're going to be in Mark 10. The title is Ransom, Mark 10. We'll look at verses 32 through 45. I want you to uh, hold a place in Mark's gospel and also turn to John 13. John 13, okay? So those are the two places we will begin. Mark 10, John 13. I'm going to pray for us one more time. Father God, thank you again for this beautiful, wonderful family of God. What a precious group of people this is. Um, you know, I, I think when you look around the world and you, and you look at, you know, just what we see out there, the church is just such a unique place, such a unique group of individuals. And while we're all imperfect, Lord, and we make our mistakes, the glue that holds us all together is your grace, your love, your Holy Spirit, that we're of one heart and one mind when it comes to the things that really matter, and that we're here, Lord, you tell us to love each other and serve each other. And those are really the basic things that you tell us the world will know that we belong to you if we love each other, if we serve each other. So, Lord, I was just back there listening to Shane's prayer, and it just resonates with my heart that there's an old uh, chorus that goes, make me a servant, humble and meek. Lord, let me lift up those who are weak. And may the prayer of my heart always be, make me a servant. Make me a servant today. Lord, the only way that's really going to happen is by your spirit. So we just pray that we'd set aside every distraction, every weight, every worry that we might have brought into this place. And we pray that our ears would be open to the voice of our master, our good shepherd. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, to prepare us for what's ahead, and I think many of you know what's ahead, um, the disciples are going to do another goofy thing. Shouldn't shock us, right? Um, but I think just like as we teach through the book of Genesis, Genesis uh, 30, Wednesday night, we went through Genesis 30, and it was, I, I have to say, we did a lot of laughing on Wednesday night, if you were here. How many of you were here on Wednesday night? I apologize for the comedy routine that it turned into, but if you want to go back and listen to this, the message, the reason we were laughing so much is that we could relate so well with this messed up family that ends up becoming you know, the 12 tribes of Israel through Jacob. So uh, I think that there's hope there for all of us. But before we get into this particular teaching and we watch, we're going to watch James and John do something that in many ways seems unthinkable. Jesus is going to tell them for the third time in Mark's gospel, I'm getting ready to die. We're going to go to Jerusalem. They're going to mock me, scourge me, spit upon me, kill me. And we're going to watch them just brush that aside and become extremely selfish. And, you know, you can sit and read your Bible sometimes and think to yourself, I can't believe that. I can't believe people who were around Jesus for this long could be so selfish. Until you take a look in the mirror. And then you realize how selfish we all can be. But here's what I wanted to show you before we go into the Mark uh, section. This is John 13 Verse 1, this is the famous section leading into him, Jesus washing the feet of the disciples. This is called the upper room discourse. So John chapters 13 through 17 all take place 
in a 24-hour period of time called the Upper Room Discourse. So the night before Jesus is going to die, this is what he does. Now before the feast of the Passover, John 13, 1, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he should depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And I think it's just really beautiful to know that even though if you turn to Mark, we're going to look at another kind of bumbling situation among the disciples, and we're going to wonder how Jesus could ever put up with a group of 12 guys like this. John 13 tells us, even to the you know, end when he was just about to be crucified, and with all that he had dealt with from not only them, but all the people pressing on him and wanting you know, a piece of him for what they could get out of him, the Bible tells us he loved them to the end. He never gave up on them, and he won't give up on you, no matter what struggles you bring to the table. Mark 10, 32 is where we pick up the section as we move through Mark's gospel. The title is Ransom. Let's read it together. Mark 10, 32 says, And they were on the road, Mark 10, 32, going up to Jerusalem. You always go up to Jerusalem because it's an elevated city. And Jesus was walking on ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the 12 aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him. Now, I want you to notice that Jesus is walking ahead of the disciples. This is quite an image of a shepherd because we know shepherd, a shepherd leads the flock. Uh, he leads them to green pastures and still waters. And there's a little message in here that I think we just need to take note of, and it's this, wherever he leads, you're supposed to follow. It's not supposed to be the reverse, by the way. It's not supposed to be, Lord, I'm going over here. Would you follow me over here today? It's supposed to be that he's our good shepherd and we follow his lead. And this is a beautiful picture of a shepherd leading his flock. And he's leading them. In fact, he just says, we're going to Jerusalem. This is the first time in Mark's gospel that he's, he'll give three warnings about what's coming. The first time he mentions Jerusalem specifically and if you study Jerusalem, you know, if you've done any study at all, it's the city of God. It's this beautiful place. It's the place where God said he would write his name forever. But it's also the city that kills the prophets, that, you know, won't listen. And this is where Jesus is going for the ultimate showdown. He's going to go and die for the sins of the world. And still, the disciples just cannot fathom. Luke 9.51, if you want to make a note of it, says that he set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. And you know, uh, where he's going is he's going to be brutally killed. And yet he leads his flock because he's going to lead them by dying for them. Ultimately, that's how he secures their place in the kingdom. The Bible tells us in verse 32 that the tension seemed to be thick. They were amazed and those who followed were fearful. This comes on the heels of Jesus' teaching about the rich young ruler. And he said how difficult it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom. And then they said, well, then who can be saved, Lord? And Jesus said, with men, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. But there was some shock and awe. There was a lot of things that Jesus said and did that just staggered these guys. 
And still they couldn't fathom that he was going to die. They thought he was going to go restore David's throne in Jerusalem, kick the Romans out, restore the glory of Israel. But Jesus said in Mark 10, 31, many who are first will be last and the last first. And now he pulls the 12 aside and he gives them the straight reality of what is ahead of him and by extension what they're going to have to deal with. And he says, behold, 33, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man, which is a title for the Messiah, will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and will deliver him to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit upon him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. There is the gospel, but this is the gospel in prophecy. We all need to just be reminded that Jesus Christ predicted his own death and resurrection. If you turn on some channels on your television, they will say, some people say Jesus didn't actually die on the cross. There's some religious movements that say, no, it couldn't have been him. Maybe it was a, a twin or, you know, it wasn't really him on the cross. And there's other people that say, oh, no, this whole death and resurrection thing is just a metaphor for something else. He didn't really rise from the dead. But you know what? Jesus prophesied his own death and resurrection. If it didn't come to pass, what does that make him? A false prophet. It did come to pass exactly as he said it would. And by the way, this just lends more credence to his deity because he predicted his own death and resurrection and exactly how it would happen. He would be mocked. Sadly, he would be spit upon, scourged, and killed. Now, there's several times in our Bibles, if you turn to Isaiah chapter 50, where Jesus is appealing to something that was found in the book of Isaiah, and it's called the four servant songs. Go to Isaiah 50. I want to show you a few of them this morning, Isaiah 50, and we'll connect the Old Testament with the New. And here's one of the servant songs. This is called the Servant of Yahweh. He's the shadowy figure in the Old Testament. It seems like every time some difficult teaching is given to Israel, something about their shortcomings or even God's discipline of them, this, this figure emerges and he's this shadowy figure that sometimes it looks like he's actually Israel itself, but he's actually the Messiah. And he's called the servant of Yahweh. I'll show you that in Isaiah 53 when we come to the end of this message. But for this uh, section, pick up Isaiah 50 verse 1. This is one of the servant songs. I believe this is the third one. It says, Thus says the Lord, Isaiah 50, verse 1, Where is the certificate of divorce by which I have sent your mother away? Or to whom of my creditors did I sell you? Behold, you were sold for your iniquities and for your transgressions. Your mother was sent away. Isaiah 50, verse 2. Why was there no man when I came? When I called, why was there none to answer? Is my hand so short that it cannot ransom? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, I dry up the sea with my rebuke. I make the rivers a wilderness. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness. I make sackcloth their covering. And then notice what happens now. The Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. The Lord God has opened my ear. 
And I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. I think of Jesus leading the 12 to Jerusalem. He would not turn back. He had set his face like flint to Jerusalem. Notice this prophecy. I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. If you've seen any movies that depict the the passion of the Christ, you'll take note that some of the movies show them grabbing his beard and pulling his beard out. And uh, any of you who have grown facial hair know how painful that is. Uh, This is not mentioned, by the way, in the New Testament accounts, but we just infer that it did occur by this prophecy. We know his back was scourged with the cat of nine tails. He says, I notice the voluntary nature of the prophecy. I gave my back to those who strike me. Jesus would say in John 10, no one takes my life from me. I give it of my own accord. I have the power to to give it, the power to take it back again. He says, they plucked out the beard. I did not cover my face when they were spitting in his face. This prophecy says he didn't even cover his face. I didn't cover my face from humiliation and spitting. It amazes me in Mark's gospel, there are times when Jesus even uses his spittle to heal people. Those are remarkable occasions, and we almost look at them in a bit of, Uh, being perplexed, but to spit in someone's face is the ultimate insult. And that's what they did to him. And he says, I didn't cover my face from humiliation and spitting, for the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I am not disgraced. Therefore, I've set my face like flint. Everybody, if you haven't written this before in your Bible, write Luke 9.51. This is where it comes from. I have set my face like flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. That's one of the servant songs predicting the death of Jesus Christ. Now, if you go back to Mark's gospel, um, this is what Jesus is facing, but we're gonna watch the disciples ask him to give them prominent positions in the coming kingdom. And we have to ask the question, what's going on with them? And And I suppose that we get hints from the gospel of Mark what's really going on, and it's this, At least four times I can catalog in my own study times when Jesus uh, or the the gospel mentions their hardness of heart. Mark 2.28 says Jesus was grieved at their hardness of heart, speaking of the religious leaders. Might want to just jot these down. Mark 6.52 says the apostles' hearts were hardened and they hadn't gained insight from the miracle of the loaves and fish and fish. Um, Mark 8.17, Jesus directly says, do you have a hardened heart to the apostles? And in Mark 10, 5, Jesus says, Moses gave a certificate of divorce because your hearts are hard. And once again, I think we're gonna see that their hearts are callous. Now, I'm a baseball fan. We're in baseball playoff time. And at the beginning of spring training, athletes, baseball players who don't wanna wear batting gloves will actually build up calluses on their hands so that they can toughen up their hands for a long season ahead. And when the Bible talks about a hard heart, it speaks of a calloused heart. It speaks of a heart that's been layered again over and over and over again. And usually if you go with the image, it's because of being wounded. When we get a wounded heart, we sometimes get a calloused heart. And many people who are walking around our city this morning and they're not gonna step foot in a church this morning have a calloused heart. But this is not about people out there. This is about the 12 followers of Christ. 
who are going to take the baton of the gospel. And Jesus has noted several times that they have a hard heart. So think about the context now. Jesus leading the way to Jerusalem has to pull the 12 aside. There's shock and fear and amazement. He reminds them, we're going. This is what's going to happen to me. Terrible you know, this is what, what's ahead. You would think that after this, one of the apostles would have took Jesus aside, put his, their arm around him and said, Lord, can I pray for you? Lord, Lord, can I pray right now that you would be strengthened for what you're I don't understand why you're gonna die. That's not even in my theology. I thought you were just gonna restore the kingdom right now. But if that's what you say, I know you're the truth. Therefore, we're gonna surround you. In fact, why don't we get all 12 of us around you, Lord? You, why don't you just sit for a minute? You're always giving yourself away to everybody and we'll just pray for you right now. Okay, Lord, that's what we'll do because we know how much you love us and we love you. And wouldn't it be wonderful if that's what the Bible teaches us next, but it ain't going to happen. Notice what comes right after he says what's going to happen to him. And James and John, now let's just park here for a second. James and John, who, who are these guys? This is the inner circle. This, Peter, James, and John are usually the three guys. If anybody gets separated, these three are like the inner circle of the inner circle. They're the ones that Jesus takes into the room when he raises the little girl, Jairus' daughter. These are the three guys that went up on the Mount of Transfiguration and saw the glory of Jesus revealed. And James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, known as the sons of thunder, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. <laughs> what? What? Yeah, 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 yeah. You're going to die and all that stuff, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. You're going to Jerusalem, mocked, spit up upon, scourged, crucified, rise again. Okay, yeah, yeah. But let's not talk about you. <laughs> let's talk about our favorite subject, us. See, we know you just said you're going to be treated terribly and die and rise and thus provide the way for all mankind. But what we're really concerned about is what we want you to do for us. In fact, here's the way we're going to put it. Hey, Lord, we want you to do whatever we're about to ask you to do. Okay? Okay? Would you, would you just go ahead? And, Lord, we prepared a document right here. Would you just go ahead and sign this? I will do whatever James and John ask me to do in the coming moments. Okay, just sign here, Lord. Don't worry about the small print. It's not a big deal. What? Yeah. Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. Jesus had just shared the ultimate thing he was about to do for them. You know, so many times... We're so worried about what we want right now, we forget what he's already done for us. He just told them what he's about to do. He's about to do the ultimate act of love. He's about to take their place, pay their ransom. And what are they stuck on? Lord, we want you to do what, you, what we ask of you. Just think of how insensitive their words are in the moment. Have you ever been in a situation where you felt like you've given everything you can give to an individual or everything you can give to a situation and then you're shocked to find out that someone just brushes all that aside and asks you for more. Some of you can think of your boss right now. <laughs> but I've already worked 62 hours this week. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
I want you to do whatever I ask of you. (laughs) How do you think Jesus responded to these words? What do you think his posture was? What do you think his facial expression looked like? Do you think he was bummed out? Do you think he was like, oh my goodness, did they they really not hear what I just said to them? I, I have to confess, I was sitting in my office this week and I was reading this and I was sitting in my office and I don't cry a lot, but I was in tears in my chair. And I'll tell you why. Because I started to think of how often I do this. I started to think of how often my prayers are nothing more than, Lord, I want you to do whatever I'm about to ask you. Okay? Lord. And instead of taking the posture of a servant so often, I have a laundry list of things that I want the Lord to do for me. Can you relate? Have you ever stepped back from your prayer life and asked yourself the last time you came to the Lord and said, Lord, what would you have me to do today? So much of our modern prayer lives are a laundry list of things we want God to do for us. And I hope, Lord, that you can take care of A, B, C, D, E, E1, E2, E3, right? And sometimes I wonder how the Lord must feel in heaven. How many prayers a day does he hear all over the globe that are couched exactly like this? Lord, we come to you and we'd like you to do right now whatever we ask of you. And I wonder how many prayers he actually gets of thank you for what you've already done for me. I wonder how many prayers he gets where someone says, Lord, not only am I grateful for what you've done for me, but I'm going to ask one thing. Use me today. Lead my feet where you want them to go because I am your servant. You are the master. Your will be done in my life. Even if I don't like it, even if I don't want to go where you're telling me to go, I'm going to go because you're Lord and I'm servant. You're shepherd, I'm sheep, and I'm going to follow. How do you think modern Christianity is doing with that? You know, my reaction in looking at this text, if I were Jesus, I would have said something like, you got to be kidding me. Have you ever just wanted to chime in for the Lord, right? This, Lord, this is how you should respond to these knuckleheads. (laughs) Until I realize I'm one of the knuckleheads. And he simply responds, 36, what do you want me to do for you? Now, I don't know how he said it. <laughs> this is one of those, another one of those ones where I'm hoping we get video footage. Like, I don't know if he, because this is how I would do it. What do you want me to do for you now? Do you know how many people came to him and that was all they wanted? They wanted what he could give them whether it be food or a healing miracle or a sign from heaven. That's, that's how he got approached all the time, constantly. And that's how he gets approached today. He's still in heaven. He's still this great intercessor. But for most of the people that probably come to him, including those of us in the church, we come. And we probably have our laundry list and And my temptation this morning was just to blast all of us and say, 
You know what? We're all just a bunch of selfish, little, whiny. I was going to go down my list, and then I thought, you know what? But that's not the Lord's heart. I think when he asked, what do you want me to do for you? It was a genuine shepherd's heart. I'm amazed. I don't know about you, but I'm amazed at how many times I've asked the same thing of the Lord, and I, I wonder how he responds. How many times I've come with the same thing I've stumbled over, and I wonder, I wonder what he thinks or if he's ever disgusted with me. But Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says that we come to a throne of what? Grace. That we may say, receive mercy and help in our time of need. He loved them to the end, and he will love you to the end. Does he want you to grow? Yes. Does he want you to serve him? Yes. Does he want you to change your prayers along the lines that we're talking about? Yes. Does he want these 12 to change the world? And they are. Yes. But his attitude is so gracious. And he doesn't give up on us even when we give up on ourselves. John F. Kennedy in his inaugural address, January 20th, 1961, shared these immortal words. He said, in your hands, my fellow citizens, more than in mine will rest the final success or failure of our course. Since this country was founded, each generation of Americans has been summoned to give testimony to its national loyalty. The graves of young Americans who answered the call to service surround the globe. Now the trumpet summons us again. Not as a call to bear arms, though arms we need. Not as a call to battle, though embattled we are. But a call to bear the burden of a long twilight struggle. Year in and year out, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation. A struggle against the common enemies of man, tyranny, poverty, disease, and war itself. Can we forge against these enemies a grand and global alliance, north and south, east and west, that can assure a more fruitful life for all mankind. Will you join in that historic effort, he asks. In the long history of the world, only a few generations have been granted the role of defending freedom in its hour of maximum danger. I do not shank from this responsibility. I welcome it. I do not believe that any of us would exchange places with any other people or any other generation. The energy, the faith, the devotion which we bring to this endeavor will light our country and all who serve it. And the glow from that fire can truly light the world. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. My fellow citizens of the world, ask not what Americans will do for you, but what together we can do for the freedom of man. Finally, whether you are citizens of America or citizens of the world, ask of us the same high standards of strength and sacrifice which we ask of you. With a good conscience, our only sure reward, with history the final judge of our deeds, let us go forth to lead the land we love, asking his blessing and his help, but knowing that here on earth, God's work must truly be our own. Now, whatever you think of that speech there's some God sprinkled in that, but here's what we remember from that speech. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Could I apply it to the church? 
Ask not what the church can do for you, even though the church should be ministering to all who come through its doors. But when's the last time you asked the question, what can I do for my church? What can I do for my Lord through my church? Sadly, I think in much of the Christian church, Christianity has become a bit of a spectator sport where we judge where we're going to go and what we're going to do based upon what we get out of it. And I understand that. And you should go somewhere where you are being fed God's word. But your Christian experience should not end there. Your Christian experience should be one of service. Asking the Lord, how would you use me in this setting and whatever gifts and calling I have? And so he said, what do you want me to do for you, 37? And they said to him, grant that we may sit in your glory, one on your right hand and one on your left. Now, Matthew's gospel, and this is found in Matthew chapter 20, tells us that they brought their mama with them. (laughs) In fact, Matthew's gospel has it that the mom asks the question, and they're all kind of kneeling or bowing before the Lord. You know it's desperate times when you get your mama to come and ask the Lord, right? Hey, mom, this will help. You ask him. Now, we don't know. Maybe they asked him, and then, he, then uh, mom asked, or vice versa. It may have, may have been a question asked more than once, but whatever it was, the three of them are before him, and they're asking for these grand positions on his right hand and left hand in his glory. Matthew's gospel has in the kingdom to come. And I think these guys have brushed aside what he's just said about dying in Jerusalem, and they think, no, when we go to Jerusalem, man, he's setting up David's throne again, and and we better go ahead and get the best seats now, right? I think they had a couple of moments where they're thinking, can you believe it? He's the Messiah, and he chose us, and we're one of the 12. Let's make sure we're one of the two. Great idea, John, yeah! (laughs) Let's get while the getting's good. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Look at verse 38. You don't know what you're asking for. You ever been there? (laughs) Maybe we should pay a little bit more attention to what we pray, right? Because sometimes we we make these grandiose prayers, right? And then have you ever made like a really kind of dangerous prayer? And then stepped back and and went, oh no, what did I just pray? Lord, I'll go wherever you want me to go. I'll do whatever you want me to do. I'm yours. And then you go, oh shoot, I hope the Lord was having breakfast when I prayed that one. Can you, is it possible to take anything back up there? Can you strike that from the record? You know. And I wonder if the Lord sometimes says to one of the angels, they don't know what they're asking for. (laughs) Sometimes we think we know, right? Oh, Lord, now I've got it all figured out. This is the plan. A, B, C, and D, okay? The Lord's like, "Uh, I don't think you know exactly what you're asking for. You might want to tag that prayer with not my will but yours be done. You know, I know some people say that's a weak way to pray. Like, I... Do you really have to tag your prayer with that? Aren't you, isn't your faith strong enough? Oh, I have strong faith. But I believe that God is smarter than I am. And I don't believe it's a cop-out to pray a prayer of faith and then say, but not my will, 
Yours be done. I think that's an act of faith. And when he brings up the cup, he says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be the, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? He's taking common images. The cup sometimes speaks of the cup of indignation in both the Old and New Testament. And this baptism is not a baptism like a joyful baptism. Some writers say that this baptism pictures a forceful or violent immersion into the depths of the ocean. Like, do you know what I'm about to do? Do you know the depths of suffering I'm about to go into? Do you know the cup I'm going to drink, which is the cup of suffering and the cup of God's indignation and wrath? Do you want to drink it? Jesus is in the garden and he says, Father, if it's possible, let this, what? Cup pass from me. I don't want to drink it, Lord. I don't want to drink it, my Father. Let that cup pass. So people say, what's that cup? That cup is the wrath of God. That cup is the cup of suffering. He didn't want to drink it, but he was going to. And he drank it so you don't have to. He drank, the, he ingested the wrath of God so you don't have to. He took the baptism, if you will, being baptized on the cross. And in this image, Luke 12, 50 is a key verse that says, I have a baptism to undergo and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. He knew how he was gonna die. We just read it. Can you imagine how much sleep would you get each night knowing you faced Roman crucifixion? How well would you be doing with trying to focus on the needs of others when you knew a cross was ahead of you? Do you realize that in his earthly ministry, the whole time he lived in the shadow of the cross, the whole time he knew where he was going, the whole time he knew how he was going to die? And do you look how gracious he is? When I have a little bit of stress in my life, I'm like, you know, to people. You know? Sometimes a little bit of pain or a little bit of, you know, stress in our lives and we, we don't treat people well around us, but Jesus... The whole time he knew where he was going. He said, you don't know what you're asking for. Are you able? And they said to him, look at verse 39. We are able. <laughs> oh, yeah? You remember Peter? Peter says, Lord, though everybody bails on you. Loose paraphrase. That's a modern translation. I will not. I will be, I'll be faithful to the end. And Jesus says, will you, Peter? This very night you will deny that you even know me three times. Are you so self-confident? Are you so convinced that you can do this? Do you really understand what's about to happen? And they said, oh, Lord, we're, we're able. And Jesus said to them, notice this, the cup that I drink, you shall drink. And you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. Let's think about these two guys did they experience a cup of suffering? Yes. James, the brother of John, is killed in Acts chapter 12 by Herod himself. If you want to write it down, just write it down. This is Acts 12, 1 through 3. Now, about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. Acts 12, 1 and 2. James was killed. It's almost treated in passing in the New Testament, but James drank the cup of suffering and even martyrdom. 
John in, in Revelation 1.9 is on the island of Patmos when he writes the famous book of Revelation. And most scholars conclude that he's on some sort of penal island that is like an ancient Alcatraz. He's been banished to the island to suffer and die. And that's where John gets the revelation when he's pretty old. And John suffered as well. James and John did drink the cup. Do you imagine that when they asked the Lord for that cup, they knew what they were talking about? Do you think James imagined a sword and John an island of banishment? No. And that's why Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking for. You see, we got to trust that the Lord knows the direction that our lives are supposed to go. And he says, but to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give. In Matthew's gospel, it says it's in the Father's hands. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And hearing this, the ten, so, you know, they're walking along the road, going to Jerusalem. The ten are whistling along, you know. And all of a sudden, they get wind that James and John and their mama are talking to Jesus. And apparently, the wind shifted, and someone was within earshot, and they heard what was going on. And the twelve, well... They were indignant. Look at this. And hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. It was something like this. How dare you ask him for the best positions? Why didn't I think of that? They beat us to the punch. James and John. It's always about James and John. The two J's, J.J. And they were indignant. You know what indignant means? It means you're mad and, and sorry at the same time. But what were they sorry about? Were the, were the other 10 so righteous that they were feeling bad for Jesus? <laughs> Lord, I don't know how they could have done this to you. We were just about to pray for you, the 10 of us over here. Uh-huh. And calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles. Now, see the word Gentiles there? That, that is a non-Jew. So when Jesus brings up rulers of the Gentiles, who do you think he's probably talking about? Just guess. The Romans, right? Maybe Herod. Herod was Idomean and his sons that followed. So they weren't technically Jewish. But I would imagine that Jesus' primary reference here is to the Romans. The Romans are occupying Israel. It's they're not free. It's a very difficult time. And so who do the Romans give heed to? What, who's their leader? It's the emperor. And how did the emperor depict his power? Well, they found coins minted from this time, and it would often have the image of the emperor. And in fact, there would be inscriptions on the coins. They found them in archaeology. And the inscription would give divinity to the emperor. It would say that the emperor is a god. And anybody that didn't serve the emperor properly, guess what? You die. In fact, the Roman Colosseum, and many of you have seen movies and heard you know, history on this, was really for entertainment in Rome to please the emperor and, wh and whatever he wanted. At his word, you died. You give him what he wants or you die. Some of the leaders, even among the Herods, were known to kill their wives and even their sons on the spot, kill their servants for doing one wrong thing. You're dead. 
That's how they, that was their power. And as a Jewish person thinking of Roman leadership, how would you think of Roman leadership if you were a Jew at that time? Would you despise it? I'm sure you would. I'm sure you would hate everything that it stood for. Now notice, Jesus says, the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over people, lorded over them. Their great men exercise authority over them. But he says, but it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be what? Your servant. E.J. Ironside said, Greatness in the kingdom of God is evidenced by one's readiness to deny self and serve others for Christ's sake. Jesus himself is the ultimate example of this. Do you want to be great? Then be a servant. In the upside-down kingdom, the world thinks that it's all about lording it over people and positions and corporate ladders and all of that, not in the church. In the church, the great among us serve. Think back to history. Ask yourself, which people would you say have made the greatest impact on our society? If you were just to think back to recent history or even, you know, a couple thousand years. We all know Jesus, right? But you know, people often talk about Mother Teresa and other people. And when they talk about these folks, why are they lauded? Why are they held in such high esteem? Because they gave their life for others. Think about people who tried to hide Jews in the Nazi Holocaust. Think about Schindler and others who tried to do what they could at their own peril to save other people. That is who we remember. We don't remember people who were if we do remember people who are spoiled and selfish, we remember them with disdain. If that principle is true even in the world, how much more in the eyes of God? And Jesus says, if you want to be great, can I make a personal application to you? Do you want to be great? How many of you uh, would prefer mediocre? How many of you have showed up to be mediocre today? I hope you don't do that. I hope you don't approach life saying, you know, mediocres. Yeah, I'm good with that. <laughs> and I tell you what, there's a lot of people who are good with mediocre. But I tell you what, that's not what I want. I don't want to walk into the pearly gates one day and have Peter, if Peter is at a table. I have no idea. If, why is Peter always at the table? I don't know. But anyway, and Peter say, oh, yeah. Hey, Michael, yeah, you're good. You made the mediocre list. Yeah, yeah. Great! Yeah! Exactly what I was shooting for, baby! What do I get? See that straw hut over there? That's yours. Wow. Fix it up. (laughs) And the thing that we say matters the most, oftentimes we give the least to it. Statistics about American Bible reading. Statistics on church attendance right now in America and how many people walk into a church desiring to serve in that place. Not good. And Jesus says, whoever wishes to be first among you, he shall be slave or servant of all. Now, in rapid fire, I'm gonna read a couple of parallel passages. I'm gonna take you to the final verse and we're done. Here's... Three parallel texts. You could turn with me if you want to. First one, Romans 12. Romans 12, look at verse 10. So it's just a little bit to your right. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. 
12.10 says, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Romans 12.11, Not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, Romans 12.12, Persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. Contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Turn all the way to 1 Peter. 1 Peter is written to a suffering church back of the New Testament. 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter's writing about the gospel and he's talking about the prophets who didn't understand everything that they prophesied. And here's an insight he gives to these prophets that we know well. 1 Peter 1.12 says, It was revealed to them, 1 Peter 1.12, that they were not serving themselves but you. In things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you, 1 Peter 1.12, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. And finally, in 1 Peter 4, verse 10, 1 Peter 4, verse 10, it says, to a suffering church going through difficulty, 1 Peter 4.10, as each one has received a special gift, that is a gift from the Spirit, employ it in doing what? In serving one another, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And whoever speaks, let him speak, 1 Peter 4.11, as it were, the utterances of God. Whoever serves, let him do so by the strength, as by the strength which God supplies. So that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Back to Mark 10. We'll do the final verse. You can see these exhortations are all over the Bible, and they are to serve each other. And when we serve each other, we reflect Jesus Christ. Maybe no more uh, powerfully do we reflect Christ when we love and serve each other in the church. When we, and I know a lot of you do this, you do beautiful things, you bring meals to people, you call people and pray for them, you send cards to them, you encourage them, some of you drive people to places they need to be, you provide groceries, you do a lot of things, and when you do that, you're reflecting what Jesus said. You're becoming great in his eyes, even if nobody sees what you do. He does. For even the Son of Man, Mark 10, 45, this is our uh, main verse, call it our theme verse for the whole Gospel of Mark. Here it is. For even the Son of Man, a messianic title for the glorious figure of Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And how did his service come to Conclusion, he gave his life as a ransom for many. Now, he did rise, and we know he said he was going to, and he did, but he gave his life as a ransom for many. That's how he served. Now, I want you to turn to the fourth and final servant song in Isaiah 52. Let's go back there. Isaiah 52. 1 John 3.16 says these words as you locate Isaiah 52. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and so we ought to what? Lay down our lives for one another. This is how we know what love is. It's the old rock and roll song, I want to know what love is. <laughs> Were you afraid I was going to sing it? I can't sing like that guy. I want you to show me, right? This is how we know what love is. 
Would you hear it? Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. So we ought to lay down our lives for one another. And as he looked at the 12, what do you think his assessment was at that point? How do you think they were doing with loving each other? I mean, if they would have been doing what Jesus said, they wouldn't have been indignant at the goings-on of James and John. They would have been trying to love each other and love the Lord through it. But this is the beauty of the Lord. And it says these words. This is the servant song from Isaiah 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Isaiah 52, 14. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man, his form more than the sons of men. 52, 15. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them, they will see. What they had not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth, 53.10. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of, his, of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, note it, my servant will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Jesus said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as what? A ransom for many. We all know what a ransom is, right? If someone took someone you loved and gave a ransom note, they would say, I require, let's say, $10 million for the recovery of your child. You would search land and sea, would you not? You would do whatever you had to do. You would sell everything until you had rags on your back to go 
get money to rescue the one you loved. And you would, do, you would give your life. And Jesus went land and sea. In fact, he left heaven and came to earth to rescue you, to ransom you. And the purchase price, brothers and sisters, was not silver and gold. It was his blood shed for you. He ransomed himself. He was the payment price. He went to rescue us out of the bondage of slavery. This, this word ransom in Hebrew connects very much to redemption and a slave or someone who may be in prison or you know, maybe in servitude was, was rescued out of it by a ransom, which then once they were ransomed, they were, they were called redeemed. And if you met them on the street and someone said, hey, tell me a little bit about your history, they might say to you, I was once a slave, but my master came and saved me and he paid for me to get out and now I'm redeemed. Let the redeemed of the Lord, oh, that was weak. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. That's how you can introduce yourself now. Redeemed, purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ. That's how much he loved us. And that's the kind of service he wants us to give. Not, you know, I'm talking about now laying down our lives Ultimately, probably for most of us in a metaphorical sense, I'm talking about yielding our rights and taking up our cross, becoming great in his eyes. Bow with me, Father. Thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it is indeed a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Thank you, Lord, that you were the ultimate servant because if you didn't do this, we would not be ransomed. We would not be redeemed we would have stayed stuck in slavery and condemnation. But your great love moved you to Jerusalem. You knew what you would suffer, and you did it for love, and you did it for me. I don't know how I can give back something that seems so weak when I look at what you did for me, but I can start with small things, Lord, and Maybe you'll make them bigger. But I pray, Lord, that whatever you want to say now to your people, whatever you want to go deep into our souls, and how we can act upon this word this week. See, it'll just be another Bible study, if we can put it that way, if we go out and we go back to the same old, same old. But if we are willing to do something, if we're not wanting to be a, merely a hearer but a doer of your word, then we pray you'd give us the strength the gifts, the power of your Holy Spirit to serve. We can't do it in and of ourselves. Lord, we're naturally self-centered and selfish, but let us die to self. Let your Holy Spirit, would you receive it, church, right now? Just, just come afresh on us, Lord. Give us your eyes, your heart, your serving attitude. Forgive us for the times that we have fallen short and acted a lot like James and John, Lord. And thank you that you went to the cross because you loved your own to the end. We're confident that you're going to love us right into your heavenly kingdom and, and love us forever. And we, we want to say we love you because you first loved us. With your head and heart bowed, if you're not a Christian, if you haven't known this love, if you haven't known purpose, you're going to find purpose in loving God and serving him. Trust him today. Something like this. And I would encourage you to pray it out loud and pray it now. And if you're a prodigal and you need to come home, you might want to pray it as well. Lord Jesus, be my Lord. 
Be my Savior. Pray it if it's you. I surrender my life. I repent of my sin. And I receive you as my Savior and my Lord. Change me, Lord, from the inside out. I believe you died on the cross for me. I believe that you rose from the dead. And I want to follow you. Lord, I know you're hearing the cries of people's hearts today. And I pray that you would move your church to be an army of servants. And we might change this world and be a light. A city set on a hill. People would say, see how they love each other. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to do this last song if you'd stand. And if you'd like to come up for prayer, if you open your heart to the Lord or rededicate it or you just need prayer to be more of a servant, then the front's open and we'll be waiting for you to come down at any point and we'll pray with you when the song is concluded. God bless you guys.